Hey, how's your week going? I know you can't answer me, but I still care. I'm Josh. This is We The Peace. We The Peace is a podcast sponsored by PAX, dedicated to mobilizing Christian leaders to bring Jesus-centered peacemaking and justice into our organizations. We explore how peacemaking, activism, and the justice of Jesus are central to discipleship. We the church are we the peace in a hurting and violent world. In season two, we explore how Christian leaders can develop a Jesus-centered outlook on politics. What does Jesus have to do with politics? How does the kingship of Jesus impact our understanding of modern politics? In what way is the church a political institution? We will define politics, walk through the four Christian views on politics, and then look to the ministry of Jesus for how Christians are to relate to and mobilize politically. Let's jump into this week's episode. Welcome. My name is Josh. I'm here with Dr. Kavanaugh, Roman Catholic scholar specializing in Christian ethics and political theology, author of many books, including The Myth of Religious Violence, Theopolitical Imagination, go buy it, Torture and Eucharist, and uh, my favorite, Migrations of the Holy God State and the Political Meaning of the Church. In this conversation, we're going to get to know Dr. Kavanaugh a little bit, discuss the political implications of the sacraments and really communion in particular, and the role of the church for the public good of the world. Welcome, Dr. Kavanaugh. Good to be here, Josh. Tell us a little bit about yourself, where you live, and how you ended up becoming an academic. Oh, Lord. Um, born and raised near Chicago uh, to... Uh, pretty conventional, um, conventionally pious Catholic family. You know, we, we, church was mandatory every Sunday, but we never talked about it Monday through Friday, you know. Okay. So um, uh, coming out of that sort of immigrant experience, my mom from a farm, my dad from the uh, inner city, um, that, that sort of immigrant piety, um, and eventually just wanting to explore that and figure out why that's uh, why that's important. So uh, at Notre Dame as an undergrad, I was a chemical engineering major and I got hooked on theology. Stanley Hauerwas was um, my muse there. And eventually um, uh, I was planning on going to law school because um, what do you do with a theology degree? But uh, Stanley told me lawyers are a dime a dozen, he says. And so um, after a few other uh, stops. I went to England for a couple of years. Went to Chile for a couple of years um, and worked in a uh, worked with the church in a poor neighborhood of Santiago under the military regime in the late 1980s when the church was kind of the main resistance to the military regime. Uh, and then went to Duke and got a PhD under Stanley uh, Hauerwas. Okay, yeah, that's that's uh, quite the quite the journey. And I'll just say I'm glad you're not a lawyer. <laughs> for, for, what it's, for what it's worth um <laughs> definitely are a dime a dozen uh so what has 
drawn you to your specific focus in political theology and really developing our understanding of the Eucharist and communion for the, the good of the church? I'd, I'd love to hear. Yeah, um, I mean, I guess, I mean, it's all a little mysterious. I think it's the working of the Holy Spirit, really, you know. Um, and I was always fascinated by the Eucharist um, as a kid. You know, how could you not be? by the idea of this kind of, you know, you're eating Christ's body and drinking his blood. Um, you know, there's, there's something really fascinating uh, about that. Um, and then I think, uh, you know, being taught by Stanley Hauerwas, I think the sacraments were important uh, to him as a way of kind of making uh, the church bodily. And my experience in Chile um, was such that, um, there was a kind of deeply sacramental sense to this resistance to the military uh, regime. Some a group of bishops excommunicated torturers uh, when I was there, and um, wow. this I think had a, had a really kind of uh, profound effect on me. This idea that um, uh, what we do in this ritual is um, is has to do with bodies. Uh, in in real life, and so this um, this is my body, and Paul's sense that the body is both kind of the the elements, the bread and wine, and the church. Uh, all of these kind of uh, thoughts uh, mingled to 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 make me think about um, the the body politic uh, in in a different sort of way. Wow! For clarity, for anybody who is listening. I want to define politics really quickly. There are a lot of different ways to go about that, but I'll use my definition just so everybody understands when we, we say politics or politic, we're not talking about the United States two-party system or a party or a, a candidate or anything like that. Politics is defined as human-made systems of power or government, whether centralized or decentralized, that promote human flourishing. And the shorthand of that is politics is the public good. So when we talk about the sacraments of the church being political, we're talking about the application of that church to the public good of society. And so let's move to the Eucharist and communion in specific. And first, I want to talk about maybe as leaders and as Christians are listening to this, they could come from a Roman Catholic experience or a Protestant experience. I'll just speak for mine on the, uh, it's what I call low church. If, if Roman Catholic, you know, mass is high church, then I came from low church where, you know, communion is, is very, one, it doesn't happen very often. Two, it is so uh, common in the sense that it, 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 the, the sacredness of it is lost to announcements into a, the latest evangelical song or something like that. And it's highly privatized. It's an individual expression. And kind of like what you said, maybe the Sunday doesn't lead to the rest of the week. There was never any connection between the Eucharist and what is happening the rest of the week besides the fact that you are forgiven of your individual sins, which certainly we can't minimize, but it ends there. Um, and I, I won't speak for uh, the, the Roman Catholic experience of it, how it could be managed or mismanaged. But, you know, you you talked about uh, the communion and in your work, you talk about communion and the Eucharist being uh, Im embodied or an incarnated experience. And so I would I would love for you to 
describe the contemporary world as excarnated as opposed to incarnated and and what you mean by that yeah that's a term that i pick up from charles taylor the um, canadian philosopher and um he talks about how um meaning in the modern era kind of moves from being located out there in the world to being located in the mind. And he traces this to a movement he calls reform, which actually starts before the Protestant Reformation, and it's something that affects both Catholics and Protestants. But this idea that you want to, um, instead of having this kind of magical view of the world where, you know, relics and you know, other praying to saints can stop lightning and that sort of thing, that you want it to be interiorized. And there's something really important about that, um, you know, kind of taking taking it in and having it affect your life. Um, but what happens is that it tends to kind of empty the world of magic. Um, and so uh, it also kind of empties the world of God eventually is kind of what um, Taylor talks about as the kind of uh, unintended consequences uh, of this, and so you get the um, in the the Protestant Reformation, um, especially this kind of emphasis on the interior, on faith, and so on, and not on the kind of bodily experience where you know um, you have the rituals and the pilgrimages and things that are seen and touched and felt and walked towards and so on, um, and eventually it gets kind of. Uh, removed to the mind, and he thinks that this has a great effect on the whole kind of history of um, Western civilization in modernity, and now he talks about all the different ways of of excarnation that were kind of removed from our bodies, so that charity is depersonalized. You send money to the government, and the government sends a check to someone, and you never have to encounter Poor people, warfare has turned into remote controlled killing, distance learning, you know, especially in COVID times, right? Um, Distance learning instead of face-to-face contact. Sex even turns into pornography and online dating. So even even sex becomes kind of um, de-bodified, right? Um, That's not a word, but you know what I mean, excarnated, right? uh, even consumerism, which we think of as being materialistic, is more about detachment from things than it is about attachment to things. People want something else, right? And so there's this constant movement of desire from one object to another and the kind of what Pope Francis calls the throwaway society, right, and throwaway people. Um, and the products that we buy hide the history of their material production from us, right? So you never see the people in the Amazon warehouse. You just click on something and the product magically appears uh, on your doorstep. And, you know, the smartphone, of course, um, the way it kind of removes us from people and we spend our lives kind of, and removes us from the material world, right? We spend our lives kind of staring at the palm of our hand and so on. Um, And so in all of these different ways, um, uh, we've moved to this kind of post-material culture. And there's also something kind of post-truth uh, about this, um, where um, the signs, the images are all that matters, and there's no reality behind the signs. And so everything, you know, the medium is the message, as Marshall McLuhan 
said uh, life is reduced to spectacle and what matters is how things appear and not any real truth underlying the image. And so we get, you know, politicians who uh, um, have no regard for the truth, right, um, say just about anything um, because all that really matters is the, the kind of imagery that goes yeah. along with it. Wow. So what, what I'm hearing is when you say excarnated, um, that's disembodied living. Yeah. And yeah. then incarnated is embodied living. Is that fair to say? I, I'm sure there's nuance oh, yeah. to each word, but that's essentially what we're saying, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's the, that's the basic idea. And of course, incarnation um, has strong Christian resident yes. residences, right? It's not just incarnation with a small I, it's incarnation with a capital I, the, the idea that God um, uh, doesn't just send messages, but God um, becomes a, a kind of bodily living human uh, figure um, that that meets us in, in our own flesh, right? And, and yeah. offers us his flesh. This is my body. This is my blood. And so let's, let's relate this to first the sacraments, you know, how have the sacraments also been excarnated in today's church? I talked a little bit about my Protestant upbringing and really how it is this disembodied, weird, almost it's supposed to be a spiritual experience, but it's layered on all these other things. Talk a little bit about excarnated in today's church, the sacraments. Well, I mean, there's, there's lots of different ways that this happens. You know, in in higher church contexts uh, like the Catholic context, we still have a tendency to try to talk about what does it mean, what does the Eucharist mean, you know. Um, and so I was asked one time to give a talk on the social meaning of the Eucharist, and the first thing I said was, "If I tell you what the social meaning of the Eucharist is, you have to promise me you won't stop going to Mass, right? Because yeah. if it's just a matter of meaning." then how many times do you need to be reminded of what it means, right? You know, um, so you learn the meaning and then you go out and you do, you know, translate it into social justice concerns. Um, or we talk about um, the Eucharist as uh, forming people. And I think that's tr- true and that's important, right? Um, uh, the, the sacraments engage the physical senses and this has a way of you know, the, the kind of the kneeling and the incense and the oil and the music and the touch and the genuflecting yeah. and all of this kind of has a way of working on the soul through the body. Um, but we still tend to speak of individuals kind of internalizing the liturgy and then going and doing something uh, with it. And so um, uh, I think what we kind of need to return to in some ways is thinking about the Eucharist in terms of what happens to the whole church, the whole body of Christ, and not just um, what happens to the interior of the individual. Yeah. Yeah, that's powerful, and that's a problem shared by Protestants or or Catholics, that it becomes this very individual thing. And so what would the um, incarnated practice of the Eucharist, you know, what does this look like for for churches? It really was the case um, that, as Henri de Lavoque says, that in the early church, the Eucharist was more of an action than a thing. It was what um, gathers the, the body of Christ. So Paul talks about both the church and the elements as the, the, 
the body of Christ. So in 1 Corinthians 11, when he talks about discerning the body, you know, he's talking about both of the things there and um, caring for the poorer members of the community um, and not going on and eating, you know, eating your food without discerning the body. I mean, I really think that um, he's talking about both things there, the presence of Christ in the elements and the presence of Christ uh, in the um, in the community, uh, and that I think um, so. We need to to um, to think carefully and do carefully about the um, the the church as the the body of Christ. You know, we who are many are one body, and we all partake of the one bread. First Corinthians ten. This idea in First Corinthians twelve about the diversity of the body and the care that we are to have for the um, the weakest members uh, of the body. Uh, you know, when one uh, suffers, all suffer together, and when one rejoices, all rejoice together. The sense that we're all part of the same, we share the same nervous system, mm-hmm. uh, as it were, um, I think is a, it should be a really important part of our Eucharistic uh, practice that we're um, uh, that the um, you know th- this then becomes uh, part of our of our practice taking care of the weakest members uh, of the community and this is um, a-, a way of kind of making this uh, sense of um, of interconnectedness uh, really um, palpable. Right, yeah. so um, uh, you connect First Corinthians twelve with Matthew twenty-five, and Jesus is not identified there with the people who do good things for poor people. Jesus identifies himself with the ones who are hungry and thirsty and sick and in prison and a stranger and, and naked and so on. Uh, and so there's this sense in which the the boundaries between me and you are broken down in this practice of, of the body of Christ. And that I think um, if we, if we begin to think of life in those kind of Eucharistic terms, then suddenly things become uh, very different. Why are, this is a very basic question. Why are the, the sacraments or the duties of the church political or how are they political in nature? We've been taught, you know, since Max Weber to think of politics as having to do with the state, you know, the nation state. But Aristotle has a kind of broader um, sense of it as um, something like, you know, vigilance for the common good, like you said, or a way that I, I will sometimes put it is kind of organizing bodies in space and time. Once you start talking about politics as the organization of bodies in space and time, then it becomes clear how the Eucharist is political because that's precisely what's going on there. It's the kind of organization of bodies mm. uh, in in such a way that you respect their diversity um, and you care for the weakest members and you share uh, in this kind of common common life, uh, common nervous system, as I like to, to read 1 Corinthians 12. Um, and that then uh, begins to make all the difference in the way you see uh, what is more commonly called politics 
which is really um, more like the pursuit of, you know, organized self-interest through the coercive power of the state, um, which is something very different. You referenced somebody early on in your answer uh, that defined the state, that defined politics with the nation state. Who was that? Oh, Max Weber. Yeah, okay. so um, a German sociologist uh, died 100 years ago in 1920, um, but kind of one of the founders of, of sociology and um, the one who talked about um, the state as the kind of organization that has the monop- a monopoly on the legitimate means of violence. That's one of the things he's kind of uh, known for. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And that's helpful, too, to understand what has shaped us and our understanding of this politics is the nation state, this separate thing. And religion is this private thing over here that that needs to be somehow kept out of it. Let's transition to the church. The, the early church, and this is pre-Constantine, was a means of subversion. Whether they were intentionally doing it or not, it was a subversive presence. And then we get Constantine and a church that uh, becomes very comfortable with being in power. And all of the time and space and history in between then and now, um, what does it look like for the church in North America to be subversive, to be a subversive witness. We could start by not killing other people, right? Um, I mean, that's one of the ways that uh, the early church was subversive before Constantine is that, you know, they would pray for the well-being of the emperor and and work for the service of their fellow human beings. Uh, But part of that service was that they refused to kill. And um, we became a little too comfortable with killing uh, after uh, after Constantine. And so there is something incredibly subversive about following the Prince of Peace um, in um, a, a nation that is founded on violence in so many uh, different ways. In, in, in some ways, it doesn't even require pacifism, um, but just taking the just war theory seriously, the idea that some wars are just and some wars are not, um, could have incredibly radical consequences. And this is part of what I mean by the church being an alternative politics. Imagine if uh, the church was a place of discernment about whether or not wars were just, uh, rather than simply deferring that judgment to whoever the electoral system happens to cough up. Right, um, and so in the lead up to the Iraq War, um, in the Catholic context, you know, Pope John Paul II and Cardinal Ratzinger, and a bunch of leaders uh, worldwide said this does not look like a just war uh, to us. Um, but the war started, and Catholics went off and fought it anyway. What would it have been like if a significant number of Catholics or Christians had just said this is not a just war, and we're going to sit this one out? You know, it would be incredibly subversive, but we've handed over our discernment on these matters to the leaders of the nation state um, who operate on very different criteria than gospel criteria, even if they happen to be Christians. Uh, And so the idea that um, the church could become that place of discernment um, is, in and of itself, and it, it could be incredibly radical. Yeah. 
That's beautiful. And to allow the Eucharist to be a part of what shapes the decision-making process. If we are in global solidarity with Christians, just for one, uh, that is transnational, uh, that is not going to follow the same geopolitical rules of this nation state. That's a, that's a huge implication right there of communion of the Eucharist of baptism being brought right. into this family, whether it's Catholic Protestant versions of it, wherever we decide when it happens, whether it's an infant or not, you're a part of this global community. And there is this affinity, unity, high priestly prayer type unity and solidarity we have with the global church that should transcend modern politics. Right. Absolutely. I mean, there's this beautiful phenomenon of border masses um, where they um, will go to the border between Mexico and the United States and have people on both sides of the fence um, and celebrate mass together. And so they'll be handing communion through the through the chinks in the, in the chain link fence. Um, And it's this beautiful kind of sign that the body of Christ is transnational and transgresses these kinds of borders. And the whole symbolism of building a wall, you know, that goes all the way across this border to try to keep people out is really kind of uh, contradicted by this, um, that practice of the Eucharist, which then kind of, uh, develops into uh, concrete practices like sanctuary types of movements where um, people uh, harbor, you know, refugees that are, are fleeing violence uh, in El Salvador, for example, um, violence which in a lot of ways the United States helped uh, to cause by funding and arming, you know, the, the repressive right-wing regimes during the 70s and 80s, and a lot of those arms just ended up in, you know, in the hands of armed gangs. And so in, in a lot of ways, um, we, we, broke, we broke that country, yeah. and, um, and yet we're trying to turn our backs uh, on the people that have suffered from that. Wow. And so these, um, the Eucharist can be a, a really profound countersign against that. In uh, your book, Migrations of the Holy God, state and the political meaning of the church, you wrote, quote, the church's job is to try to discern in each concrete circumstance how best to embody the politics of the cross in a suffering world. And you use this phrase, politics of the cross. How would you describe the politics of the cross? What do you mean by that? And Go buy the book, but <laughs> what do you mean by that? To me, that just has so many different kinds of uh, resonances. But um, I think one of them is trying to make a deliberate attempt to seek out and stand with people in the world who are suffering and vulnerable. And so there's this kind of politics that is this collective narcissism where um, it's America first, it's us against them, it's opposition to people in other countries, it's opposition to minorities in our own country. And the politics, what the politics of the cross indicates instead is that um, you kind of take the posture 
of Jesus on the cross where he would try to absorb violence rather than dish it out. Um, and this um, can be quite dramatic and can lead to martyrdom, but I think in a, in a more mundane way, most of us are probably not going to be called to martyrdom, but in a more mundane way, there's a way in which we can stand uh, with our neighbors uh, that suffer uh, and that God kind of puts in our uh, path. Uh, Ivan Illich has this wonderful reading of the parable of the Good Samaritan, where um, he says, you know, it's often uh, talked about as a way of universalizing our care. We don't just care for those who are like us. We care for somebody who's different uh, than us. The Samaritan cares for the Jew. And he says that that's true. um, But instead of kind of universalizing this idea that the neighbor is everybody, um, he wants to to think of it in a more contingent way as the, the point of the parable is the neighbor is anybody. So it's not just everybody, it's anybody. It's anybody that God throws in our paths. And so um, the politics of the cross is kind of finding those people that are near us but are invisible, um, that God has thrown into our path and uh, caring for them. Last few questions. What are some practical steps that Christian leaders can take to help shift the understanding of, of their people from a private pietistic sacrament to a public declaration of the kingship of, of Jesus. And so not just formally in a Sunday gathering, but as we talk about trying to move Sunday through the rest of the week, um, what would you have leaders do to practically em- embody this truth? Well, the first thing that they can do is not support lies. I, I, I'm, I, I, I'm trying to, to kind of be in, in some ways politically homeless right, that I I don't declare myself to be either a Democrat or a Republican because I think those choices are, you know, kind of both of them bad choices. But what what we're seeing in the current context is the extent of the church's support for Trump, I think, has been really alarming, especially with um, regard to uh, just the whole question of truth. Right, um, we live in this kind of post-truth world where um, Trump and his supporters feel like they can invent their own reality. And I think one of the things that the church needs to do is is just speak uh, the truth. Um, and in some ways, the politics of the cross means embracing uh, being marginalized because of that. Right, that a, a lot of the support that Trump and others get from the church is based on this idea that uh, Christians used to have prestige in the United States and now we don't anymore. And so now we're going to take back, we've got our bully in the white house and we're going to take, uh, take back some of that kind of cultural uh, uh, prestige and power that we, that we didn't, uh, that we used to have and don't anymore. And I, I just think that's absolutely poisonous uh, for the gospel. So part of what the politics of the cross means is uh, embracing the possibility that we might have to be uh, marginalized and we might have to return to the, um, the condition of the church before Constantine 
but embrace that as something uh, liberating. So that's a, that, that's a negative answer to your question. Um, but the positive answer, um, I think, uh, there's a lot of different ways to think about this. Pope Benedict XVI has talked about the church becoming a creative minority. And that, I think, is a really good way uh, to think uh, about the, these kinds of matters, that it's not um, you know, making a deal with the devil to cling to some kind of cultural power, but um, embracing our status uh, as a creative minority uh, and building these types of community that other people are going to be attracted to and see uh, the gospel being manifested uh, in them. Uh, and um, this is what, you know, this is how Gerhard Lofink um, describes the logic of the election of Israel, that um, God wants to change the world, but God is a revolutionary who has time, and so God is nonviolent, and instead of trying to enact these kind of grand revolutionary gestures and overthrowing the powers that be in one violent revolution, um, what God does is call one community of people, one small community, the Israelites, and asks them to be a chosen people, a people that um, will embody uh, this new life. And, um, and so people can come and see, and if they, if they like what they see, they can be attracted to it. Uh, and so attraction rather than uh, coercion. And that's, I think, the sense of being a creative minority, um, being this community that lives out this vision of the body of Christ um, uh, to which people can, uh, can then uh, be attracted to and, and, and be saved. And there's lots of different ways uh, of doing this. My, you know, it, not just politics, but, but economics as well, kind of creating alternative economic spaces. My church in St. Paul, Minnesota, um, belonged to uh, the Whole Farm Co-op, which is a cooperative of um, organic farmers who marketed through churches in the Twin Cities. And it was a way of kind of creating this different space of economy where it's not based on supply and demand, but it's based on the flourishing of the earth, the flourishing of families, the flourishing mm. of the people that are consuming and the kind of creation of this different kind of community where gifts circulate rather than um, this kind of dog-eat-dog uh, narrative that we get about our economy um, otherwise. I've got one final question for you, Dr. Kavanaugh, and it's the one that I was supposed to open up with. But from <laughs> your perspective, what is the key to peace in the 21st century? Let's think about that question together. I don't have an answer prepared, but let's yep. think about that question together and ask what does it mean to call Jesus Christ the Prince of Peace? Mm. And it seems like at least one of the things that it means is that Christ is the Prince of Peace because Christ does not try to create peace by doing away with all of the bad people. But God absorbs the violence of the world through Jesus Christ and offers forgiveness uh, in return. And so embodying that kind of reality in the world, I think, is what we're called to. We're so often tempted to say we need to make history come out right, 
And um, the way we have to do that is by, you know, defeating our enemies and, um, you know, putting walls in the right places and, and all of those kinds of things, uh, triumphing at the ballot box and so on. And what it means to call Christ the Prince of Peace, I think, is precisely this, this kind of opposite movement of bringing our en- enemies into these spaces of love and, um, and converting them and us, right, because we all need conversion. Thank you so much, Dr. Kavanaugh, for being with us and for being willing to answer these questions. Some I sent beforehand, some I just ask you on the spot. So I, I'm really thankful for your willingness. Thanks for your time. Oh, thank you, Josh. This, is, uh, this has been delightful and um, blessings to you and all of your listeners. Hi again. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Kavanaugh. I have five quick takeaways as I let you go. Communion leads the church towards five things. Global solidarity with fellow believers, caring for those who suffer the most. It leads us towards nonviolence and a rejection of various forms of violence. Communion and the liturgies of the church also drive us to declare political truth and to reject political lies and communion should also be leading the church to willingly transgress unjust policies of our host nation this podcast called we the peace can be found on itunes spotify and most places where podcasts land blessings as you seek to embody the peace of jesus wherever you are